Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike. Unfortunately, Dr. Matt is not with us today in this episode, and the reason why is because he's such an altruistic guy that he's decided to head off to India and teach nursing students and medical students clinical anatomy. So using cadaveric specimens, teaching them different organ systems, dissection techniques, certain anatomical locations, and then obviously some of the clinical correlates of knowing those particular anatomical locations. So that's where Maddie is, but that's good. It's good for you, it's good for me. The reason why is because we're not going to get interrupted by Matt today, thankfully. He's not going to say, hey, Micah, let's just pause for a minute and uh, let's go back and uh, talk about... No, it's not happening. It's all me, baby. And what we're going to talk about today is resting membrane potential and action potentials and nervous transmission. So that's a lot. And it doesn't sound interesting. It is interesting. It is something that many med students, many nursing students, many health students in general really have troubles with, uh, understanding what an action potential is. And the basis to this podcast today is trying to understand how when I touch the table that I'm sitting at, or when I see you or hear a friend speak, or decide to do a dance, or speak for myself, or any of this, The whole reason for it to happen, the whole way that it can occur is because of action potentials. Now, an action potential is just sodium ions rushing into a neuron in a domino-like fashion, starting at the start, moving towards the end. So if I touch the table with my index finger, I'm stimulating a receptor. This receptor is then telling the neuron inside my finger to throw sodium ions into that cell in a domino-like fashion all the way up my arm, into my spine, up my spinal cord, to my thalamus, from my thalamus to my cortex. That's all it is. Basically, if you think about what we do, what we are on a daily basis, we are a summation of ions moving back and forth across a cell. That's basically what we are. Now, I don't mean to diminish your sense of self-worth. That's up to you. That's not up to me. I'm just saying biologically, all we are when it comes to understanding the world, when it comes to feeling the world and interacting with the world, just a bunch of sodium ions moving back and forth. Now, let's talk about how this happens. Well, the first thing we need to talk about are the cells in our body. Now, the cells in our body, we know, have certain numbers of ions inside and certain numbers of ions outside. Now, what's an ion? An ion is an atom or element. So if you think of the periodic tables, uh, what's the periodic table? Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine. I'm just showing off now. If you have a look at that periodic table, you can see that they are atoms or elements. Now, when we talk about sodium ion or potassium ion or hydrogen ion, we're saying ion there. Now, we're saying the name of the atom or element, which you can find in the periodic table, but with the ion on the end, it's telling you it has a charge. Now, the reason why sodium or potassium or chloride or hydrogen don't have a charge in the periodic table is because they're neutral. And that's because the positive uh, protons are balanced out with the negative electrons. And that's the neutral form in the periodic table. But a lot of the time, they don't exist in real life or physiologically within our body in that neutral form. They exist in a form that has a charge, which means they basically have too many electrons or not enough electrons, 
Okay. Now, when we look at sodium ion, it's positively charged. It's Na+, which means it's lacking an electron because the electron's negatively charged. So to make a sodium ion neutral, it would need to gain an electron. Okay, that's the example. Now, if you have ever drunk a bottle of Gatorade, right, what you'll find is if you read the ingredients on the back, it says that there's actually salts inside of that Gatorade. You're drinking salts. Now, a salt that we commonly know uh, is table salt, which is sodium chloride, NaCl. Now, NaCl, you don't see any charges associated with it. It's neutral, and that's because when you take salt and you put it into water, what happens is that salt disassociates. Sodium disassociates from its binding to chloride. And what you get is a sodium with a positive charge and a chloride with a negative charge. Now, can you see why it was neutral beforehand? Because the negative chloride balanced out the positive sodium. And now, once it's been placed in water and it disassociates into these ions... That's what we actually call an electrolyte. So when somebody's telling you about, oh, you need, to, you need to take in your electrolytes, it's salts. Specifically, it's salts that can disassociate into water, into charged atoms or elements. All right. Now, another thing is this. We've spoken about it before, but we need to reiterate that sodium is positively charged. Potassium is positively charged. Chloride is negatively charged. Calcium is positively charged, but it has two positive charges instead of one. Hydrogen, positively charged. So these are ones, if you want to become a clinician, or you are a clinician, or you're a studying nursing student, med student, paramedic, it doesn't matter, okay? You need to understand these charge differences because without it, we do not survive. All right, now, when we take a cell, so we're going back to that cell, there's going to be different concentrations of these ions inside the cell and outside the cell. Now, generally speaking, the positively charged ions are called cations, and the negatively charged ions are called anions. Now, outside the cell, the most predominant or most abundant cation, positive charged ion, is sodium. Okay. Outside the cell, the most, uh, the most negatively charged uh, ion or anion is chloride. So sodium and chloride sit outside our cells. That means they sit in the fluid surrounding our cells known as the interstitial fluid, which is also the blood plasma within our, within our bloodstream. So all this extracellular fluid is the fluid between the cells and also the fluid in our blood. And inside of it, we have high levels of sodium, Na+, and chloride, Cl negative. Now, how do you remember that in an exam? Well, it's easy. If you think of our cell as an island right? What are islands surrounded by? The ocean, salt water. And salt water is sodium and chloride. So that's how you can remember that sodium and chloride are most abundant outside the cell. Inside the cell, what you're going to find is the most abundant cation, so positively charged, is potassium. The most abundant anion are proteins. So proteins are in high abundance within a cell. That makes sense because that's where proteins are made, right? You've got your DNA inside the nucleus. That DNA gets transcribed into RNA. That RNA moves out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm of the cell. And then ribosomes turn that RNA into amino acids. And these amino acids click together to form proteins, all happening inside the cell. And because they have all this phosphate associated with it, they're negatively charged. All right. We're setting the scene. You would think now that if you've got all this positive sodium outside and negative chloride outside, and then all this positive potassium inside and negative proteins inside, that if you were to add up these charges, they'll basically be equal. That you would have uh, equal positive negative charge inside, equal positive ch negative charge outside. But you know what? That's not the case. There's actually a charge difference from outside our cells compared to inside our cells. This is very, very important because we have certain cell types in our body called excitable cells that if they did not have this charge difference from outside the cell to inside the cell, we would not be alive. These are excitable cells such as neurons and muscle cells and certain glands as well. Okay, Now, let's talk about how does this charge difference between outside the cell and inside the cell occur. Now, you need to, in this podcast, in this episode, you need to use your imagination. You need to think and in your mind's eye, picture a nice circle. That circle is a cell, okay? Now, that circle is going to be fully enclosed. That means that there is a barrier between inside that cell and outside that cell. 
And in actual fact, that barrier is what we call a phospholipid membrane. It's basically fat. So there's a fatty layer. In actual fact, there's two fatty layers because it's called the phospholipid bilayer that separates what's happening inside the cell to outside the cell. Now, next thing is this. This phospholipid bilayer is selectively permeable. Now, what that means is only certain things can go in and out of that cell through that phospholipid bilayer. Now, what does it let through and what does it not let through? Okay, this is how I tell my students to remember it. If it is large or charged, it won't go through. I'll say that again. If it's large or charged, it will not go through the phospholipid bilayer. So let's think about some substances, for examples. Proteins. Will proteins go through? No, proteins will not go through. Why? One, they're large. They're made up of all these amino acids linked in together, and I told you they're quite negative, so they're also charged. So that's two X's for proteins. Cannot get through the phospholipid bilayer by themselves. What about ions, such as sodium ions, potassium ions, hydrogen ions. Well, first thing, are they large? No, they're atoms. They're one of the smallest things that you can actually have inside of your body. So they're not large. So that's a tick. So that means, okay, maybe it can get through. But we know that ions, by definition, are charged. So that means they cannot get through. So that means if you've got a certain amount of sodium inside or outside and potassium inside or outside, it can't just you know, free will, moving its way out, moving its way in. It just can't do it. It needs help. Now, next thing is this. Embedded in the walls of these cell membranes, you have proteins. And some of these proteins are pumps. Now, one very important pump, which you'll find in nearly every single cell of the body, embedded in the wall of nearly every cell of the body, is something called the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. Big name, right? Sodium potassium ATPase pump. And ATPase is telling you it's using ATP as an enzyme to help a process from happening. Right? Now, what is this process? Has to involve sodium and potassium, right? Because it's called the sodium potassium ATPase pump. So let's have a look. What the sodium potassium ATPase pump does is it takes sodium from inside the cell and it throws it outside the cell. That's the first thing. It also, at the exact same time, takes potassium from outside the cell and throws it in. So it takes positive sodium from inside the cell, throws it out, and exchanges it for potassium from outside the cell, inside the cell. Okay? In actual fact, for every three positive sodium that it throws out of the cell, it will throw two positive potassium into the cell. Now think about that. Three positive sodium, that's three pluses. There's a charge there, three positive charges. That's, so that's going out of the cell. Sodium, uh, potassium, sorry, has, it's throwing two into the cell and they both have a positive charge. So three positive sodium out and two positive potassium in. Well, there's going to be a net charge difference between outside the cell and inside the cell. And where do you think the positive is predominantly going to sit? Where do you think the negative is going to sit? Well, the positive is predominantly outside the cell and the negative is predominantly inside the cell. Can you see that we've started to build up a charge difference from outside the cell to inside the cell? If you were to get some electrodes and put these electrodes outside and inside and measure the charge difference, what you would find is that inside the cell, is negative 5 millivolts compared to outside. So that's what the sodium-potassium ATPase pump has just suddenly done. It's suddenly created, in most of the cells of our body, a charge difference of negative 5 millivolts. Okay? That's the first thing. Now, the important thing here is that when we look at our excitable cells, being our neurons or our muscles, for example, the charge difference is not negative 5 when it's at rest. It's actually between negative 70 to negative 90. But I've just said we've established a negative 5 difference. How do we get up to that negative 70, negative 90 difference? Okay, well think about what we've now done. We've now just established the sodium-potassium ATPase pump is throwing 3 sodium out, 2 potassium in. So now we've just also, in addition to establishing a charge difference from inside the cell compared to outside the cell, what we've also done is we've now created a high concentration of sodium outside the cell and a high concentration of potassium inside the cell. 
Can you see that? Because they're throwing all that sodium out and throwing all that potassium in. This is important because now you need to understand the process of diffusion. Now, what is diffusion? Diffusion is simply the movement of a substance or a chemical or whatever it may be down its concentration gradient. All that means is this. If you've got some water and you decide to sprinkle some salt in the corner of a cup of water, that salt will diffuse throughout that cup. It will begin at its high area of concentration where you sprinkled it in and it will diffuse to areas in which there's a low concentration of salt, so everywhere else, until hopefully it is at equilibrium and that salt is diffused evenly throughout the solution. Okay, so that's what diffusion is. Movement of some substance from its area of high concentration down to its area of low concentration. Think about this as though it's going down a slide. When you go down a slide, does it cost you any energy? Not at all. All you need to do is let go of the rails either side and you just freely move down. So that means that diffusion does not cost energy. Okay, so if we've established a lot of sodium outside, it wants to diffuse where there's not much sodium. Where's that? Inside the cell. It wants to diffuse in. Can it? No, because I told you, if it's large or charged and the sodium's charged, it can't move through that phospholipid bilayer. The same thing's happening for potassium. You've got a large amount of potassium now inside the cell, and it wants to diffuse to where there's not much potassium. This is outside the cell. Again, it can't get through the phospholipid bilayer of the cell. All right. Now, can at any point sodium come into the cell and can potassium at any point move outside the cell? The answer is yes, but it can only do it if there's a channel letting it through, like a doorway. And that doorway can be open and that doorway can be closed. Now, generally speaking, at rest, when a neuron isn't firing off, when a muscle cell isn't contracting, the sodium doors are closed, which means no sodium is diffusing into the cell. Okay? But the potassium doors are creaked open. There is a little crack in the potassium door, which means some potassium can diffuse out of the cell. What do you think that means? Well, that means that potassium with its positive charge is moving outside, taking its positive charge with it, which means it's making the inside even more negative, right? And this is what makes that resting membrane potential, this charge difference from inside to outside the cell up to negative 70 to negative 90 is that sneaky potassium leaking outside the cell through these leaky potassium channels down its concentration gradient. Now, there's something very important called an equilibrium because you may be thinking, will that potassium just leak out until all the potassium is gone? Well, the answer is no. And the reason why is this. There are two opposing gradients that are occurring here. Now think about it. We have a charge gradient, so that's the negative positive charge gradient, and we have a chemical gradient, so the concentration of either potassium or sodium. So let's think about just potassium, because sodium's not moving, right? The doors are shut. It is a negative 5 millivolts inside that cell, compared to outside the cell. And the doorways are creaked open for potassium. And now potassium starts to leak outside, taking its positive charge with it. And like I said, that starts to make the inside of the cell more and more and more negative. Now think about what that means. So while potassium is diffusing down its concentration gradient, its chemical concentration gradient, it's leaving a negative net charge inside the cell. So if a positive thing moves out, making it negative inside, that negative attracts the positive and it tries to pull potassium back in. Does that make sense? As the potassium leaves because it's positive, it's making the inside negative, wanting to pull it back in. And that's what happens. That some of that potassium, as it tries to go down its concentration, its chemical concentration gradient, it's being pulled back in by the electrical gradient. And at some point, this chemical diffusion out of the cell is balanced by the electrical pull back into the cell and there is no net movement of potassium. And when this happens, that's when we hit negative 70 or negative 90. And that's what we call the resting membrane potential. There we go. We've now just started talking and we've finished talking about the resting membrane potential. Now you may be thinking, who gives a crap? 
I've just waffled on about something that nurses and medicos don't need to know. Well, this is not true. Let me tell you why this is the case. For a neuron, the fact that it's negative 70 inside the cell compared to outside the cell is important. When that neuron wants to fire a signal, so like I said, if you want to see something or hear something or taste something or do something or move or touch something or whatever it may be, that can only happen because that neuron at rest is negative 70. Because when you stimulate that neuron, it starts to open those closed sodium doors and sodium goes down its concentration gradient into the cell. And like I said, it happens like a domino effect, which means it starts at one end and moves all the way down that neuron until, it, let's just say, you've touched the table and you want to feel that table. You only feel it because it's, that signal's been sent to your brain. And that signal is this, the uh, opening of sodium doors sequentially, like a domino effect going all the way down those neurons. That can only happen if there's a negative charge inside for the sodium to move towards. Okay? That's for neurons. For, for heart muscle... Well, heart muscle at rest is going to be between negative 70 to negative 90 millivolts, right? And the same thing happens. We need to set up this gradient of sodium outside the cell and negative inside the cell because what happens is when you open up certain channels, sodium is going to move inside the cell and swap it for calcium. Now, if it's swapping it for calcium, we're setting up a calcium concentration gradient. And you may or may not know that heart muscle will not contract unless there's a calcium gradient. So the fact that we've now established all this sodium outside the cell is important because it swaps it for calcium. And calcium gradients allow for heart muscles to contract. Digoxin. Have you heard of digoxin before? Foxglove. This type of drug plays around with this sodium-calcium exchanger and can alter the way heart muscle contracts. What about the kidneys? The fact that we've established a resting membrane potential and a concentration gradient of sodium outside the cell compared to inside the cell is important because at the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidney, we've spoken about this in a previous podcast, we can basically throw back everything that's in those tubules back into the blood. How do we do it? We swap it over with certain things. Now, with this, all this sodium outside the cell, we can swap it with, well, pretty much anything we need to swap it with, right? But another important thing is that it can piggyback <clears throat> glucose. And so establishing this uh, charge and chemical difference allows for glucose to be transported from one side of the tubule at the proximal, uh, proximal convoluted tubule to the other side. All right, I know I'm moving through this very quickly. It's because I don't have Matt to say, Michael, pause. Can you tell that I'm the type of person who talks very quickly? I get very excited and very passionate. I will start to slow down now. Now, I've told you that we've got a resting membrane potential. It's needed. That's the first point. Now, how do we send a signal? That's the next question. How do we send a signal? Okay, well, let's picture your index finger approaching the table. You're going to touch the table. Now, touch anything around you. Touch your leg, touch a table, touch, I don't know, your colleague's face, whatever it may be. You can feel that, right? And if you can't feel it, maybe you've got some form of neuropathy, go see your doctor. But if you can feel it, that's telling you that the signal that started at the tip of the finger has gone to the cortex of your brain. Now, next podcast, I'm going to be talking about with a colleague of mine. It'll either be Matt or another wonderful colleague of mine called Grant. What will happen is when a signal goes to the brain, it needs it, you will only be consciously aware of it if it gets to the cortex of your brain. The cortex is the outer two to four millimeters of your brain, okay? That allows you to be consciously aware of something that's happening. If it doesn't go to the cortex, you have no idea that it's happened, okay? All right, so you've touched your colleague's face. You poked them in the eye and you felt it. What's happened between your finger and your brain? That's what we're talking about today. Well, what you need to picture is in the tip of your finger, you have neurons, okay? Now, again, what's a neuron? A neuron is the functional cell of the nervous system, and it has a cell body just like every other cell. So if you picture a round, a normal round cell of any um, bodily tissue, you know that inside that cell, you've got endoplasmic reticulum, Golgi apparatus, ribosomes. You've got all these um, organelles that 
play particular roles, have particular functions, making proteins, synthesizing lipids, and all this type of stuff. Well, you've got that in neurons, and that sits in the cell body of a neuron. But neurons are a little bit different in the fact that their cell body has projections coming off them. And it will usually have one very long projection, and that's called an axon. And these axons can be, you know, micrometers in length, all the way to millimeters, all the way to centimeters, all the way to a meter in length. So these axons can be very small to very long. Okay. Now, these axons are what carry the signal. Now, connected to the cell body, you usually have little antennae. And these antennae are dendrites, and they pick up a signal. Okay. So the dendrites pick up a signal. That signal is transduced and moves through the axon and goes to the very end of the axon, which we call the axon terminal. Now, this axon terminal may terminate at another neuron, so that means it needs to speak to the next neuron. It may terminate at a muscle, which means it's going to tell the muscle to contract. It may terminate at a gland and tell that gland to release some particular chemical or hormone. Okay? Now, you're going to have these neurons in the tips of your fingers, and the dendrites of these neurons are going to be receiving signals and their receptors. So you're going to have certain receptors at the tip of your finger that is waiting for some sort of stimulus. Receptors pick up stimulus. Now, when you push your finger against your colleague's face, that's a mechanical stimulus. Now, that means that those receptors are mechanical receptors. Now, not all receptors are mechanical receptors. In your eye, you've got light-stimulated receptors, right? In your skin, you've also got heat hot and cold stimulated receptors. In your GIT, so your gastrointestinal tract and your small and large intestines, you've got stretch receptors. You've got so many different types of receptors in your body. Okay, now we're just using the mechanical receptor as an example. Poke that colleague's face, you've stimulated the mechanical receptors. Now what these mechanical receptors do when you stimulate them, when you push upon them, is you start to distort them. Now, when you distort a mechanical receptor, it's going to open its doors. So these receptors are going to be closed when they're not stimulated mechanically. But if you start to push upon them and you change their morphology, the way they're shaped, their doors start to open. Now, these are mechanically gated channels. That's what they're called, a mechanically gated channel, which means a gate can be open or shut. And in order, what dictates whether it's open or shut is some sort of mechanical stimulus. Now, these are mechanically gated sodium channels, which means they only let sodium in. That's what these channels do. So think about it. You stimulate a mechanically gated sodium channel in your finger, and the door opens up. The gate opens. Where is sodium, and where is it going to move to and from? Well, remember, sodium sitting outside of the neuron. And if you open up these gates, it wants to go down its concentration gradient through diffusion. And it will. So when you mechanically stimulate these receptors, some sodium is going to move inside the cell. Now, sodium has a positive charge associated with it, right? Which means it's going to take that positive charge inside the cell. Remember, inside the cell at rest of a neuron is about negative 70 millivolts. So if you take a positive sodium and bring it in, you're going to move that negative 70 more towards the positive. So it may go to negative 65, for example. See how negative 65 is closer to positive than negative 70? Now, if that happens, and let's just say we do move from negative 70 to negative 65 because some positive sodium ions have moved in, in actual fact, nothing happens. There is this important threshold number. There is an important millivolt number that we actually need to hit before you stimulate a signal to be sent down your axons. Okay, This magic number is negative 55 millivolts. Negative 55. What that means is you need to throw in enough positive sodium into that cell that negative 70 needs to go to negative 65, needs to go to negative 60, needs to go to negative 55. Once it's hit negative 55, this is the trigger to send the signal. Now, how do we get enough sodium in to make it hit negative 55? Well, what can happen is something called graded potentials. They're terrible names, I know, but all a graded potential is, is let's just say that you've got a neuron 
and you stimulate just one small aspect of that neuron and you open up, you only open up some of the, mechanic, the mechanically gated sodium channels. Well, that means only some sodium will come into the cell. Now, if no more mechanically gated cell, uh, mechanically gated channels are opened up, sodium will just be thrown straight back out via the sodium-potassium ATPase pump and no signal is sent. But let's just say you open up some mechanically gated sodium channels at one part of that neuron and then you open up some more at another part of a neuron and you open up some more at another part of that neuron because there's going to be many thousands of these mechanically gated sodium channels. If you open up a number of them and the sodium that comes in, well, what you're going to find is it all adds up. And all that positive sodium will add up inside the cell and maybe then it will hit negative 55. This is a graded potential, okay? This is a graded potential. But graded potentials won't just occur by opening up large numbers of these mechanically gated sodium channels. It can also happen, you can just open up a very small amount of mechanically gated sodium channels over a short period of time. So let's just say you open up one mechanically gated sodium channel and some sodium rushes in and it goes to, from negative 70 to negative 65 and then nothing. Then you stimulate the same one again. More sodium come in. Then you relax. He stimulates it again and more sodium comes in. Well, then you're going to suddenly go, you're going to be doing it faster than the sodium-potassium ATPase pump can throw that sodium back out of the cell. And so what that means is it's going to go from negative 70 to negative 65, negative 65 to negative 60, negative 60 to negative 55, that magic number. So that means that's a temporal-based graded potential. So you can have a spatial-based graded potential. That was where I said you stimulate numerous mechanically gated sodium channels at different parts. So it's happening in different areas at the same time. Or you can have temporally-based graded potentials where you just open up the same couple or same one mechanically gated sodium channel in a very short period of time and that sodium accumulates. Okay? This, these are different ways that you can stimulate your neurons from starting to fire off. Now, why does it need to hit negative 55 millivolts is the question. Well, that's what we call an all or nothing response. This is important because it means you will only send a signal to your brain if it hits that negative 55. So you need enough positive sodium in to hit negative 55 and that signal will be propagated. Now, why negative 55? And the answer is this. All of this is happening at the beginning of the neuron, right? And we need to send the signal down the entire length of that axon to the axon terminal. And that axon terminal, let's just say, is at the brain, so we're aware that we've poked our colleague in the face. So, let's say we've stimulated enough of these mechanically gated sodium channels that enough positive sodium has come into that neuron that has gone from negative 70 to negative 65 to negative 60 to negative 55. Negative 55, like I said, is the key. And in actual fact, it's the key that opens up all of these voltage-gated sodium channels along the length of the axon. So if you're picturing one end of this very long neuron, and we've hit negative 55, along the length of that neuron, you have all of these sodium channels, and they're closed. Along the entire length of this axon, you've got all these closed sodium channels. And they need to be open so sodium can come in in a domino-like fashion. So let's just start at the very first closed sodium channel along that axon. Once negative 55 has been reached, okay, at the start of that neuron, negative 55 is the key that opens that first sodium channel. And because the key to opening this up isn't a mechanical stimulus like it was before, it's a charged or voltage stimulus, it's called a voltage-gated channel. So the stimulus to open this channel is a voltage. And that voltage, that key, is negative 55. So now the very first voltage-gated sodium channel opens up. What does that mean? It means all the positive sodium that are outside of that neuron where that channel is will rush into the cell. What does that mean? It means that at that area of the neuron, it's going to hit negative 55 as well, which means that is the key to open the next voltage-gated sodium channel. That door opens up, sodium positive rushes into the neuron and makes it negative 55 again in that localized area. But that localized area is so close again to the next 
voltage gated sodium channel, which will open up. Positive sodium rushes in, it goes from negative 70 to negative 55 millivolts, opens up the next. Can you see the patterning? This is what's happening down our axons. Now think about that. That's the domino-like effect that I was talking about. Starts at your finger, goes to your brain. How quickly do you recognize that you've touched something when you've put your finger onto your colleague's face? Immediately, right? Think about all the things that need to happen. You need to have that graded potential, so the mechanically gated sodium channels need to open up and throw enough positive sodium in that it hits negative 55 millivolts in that localized area to open up the first voltage-gated sodium channel for more sodium to come in. Enough need to come in that it hits negative 55, opens the next channel, and the next channel, and the next channel. This is called an action potential, okay? This is an action potential. And when you have the negative inside of that cell experiencing all this positive sodium coming in, what happens is so much positive sodium enters the neuron that it goes from, like I said, negative 70 to negative 55. From negative 55, so much positive sodium comes in that it actually brings it from negative 55 to negative 50 to negative 45 to zero, all the way to positive 30. The inside of the neuron goes from negative 70 at rest to negative 55 when it's stimulated to positive 30 when it's sending an action potential. Going from negative to positive inside the cell is known as depolarization. That's that process of depolarization. This is so important, not just for neurons, it's important for the cardiac system. When you do an ECG, or if you're in an American, EKG, right, an electrocardiogram, right? You put those electrodes on the chest of your patient and on the limbs and you measure what's going on in the heart, that's picking up depolarization. It's picking up when negative things change to positive things. And you know what? This process of positive sodium moving into the cell for an action potential or a signal to be sent is exactly what happens in a heart cell to tell it to contract. The only difference is once the positive sodium has moved into the heart cell and gone up to its positive 30-ish or positive 20-ish, once that's happened, calcium also moves into the cell and that tells the heart muscle to contract. So once depolarization has happened in a heart, calcium comes in and the heart contracts, which means if you can measure depolarization, you know what's going to immediately follow that that's contraction. And that's what an ECG measures. It measures depolarization events and therefore tells you what part of the heart is contracting at what period of time. We will do another podcast on ECGs, absolutely. But let's focus on the neuron for the moment. We've now had this domino effect of voltage-gated sodium channels opening up in sequence, going down that axon. It's moving down, down, down. Like I said, that means the whole neuron is depolarizing. It's going from being negative 70 inside to positive 30. Now, once it's hit positive 30, all these voltage-gated sodium channels close. So the key to opening them up was negative 55. The key to closing them is positive 30. Now, this is important because we need to close these voltage-gated sodium channels, okay? Now the cell, so let's just say we've sent the signal all the way down to the very end of that neuron and that's taken it up to the brain for us. We'll talk about that later. But let's talk about what's happening at the neuron. The neuron's gone from being negative at rest to now positive after an action potential's been sent. If we left that neuron as being positive now inside the cell, do you think we could send, if I touch something with my finger again, do you think that I could send another action potential or another signal down that neuron? No, it's not possible because an action potential is throwing positive sodium into a negative cell and changing its charge called depolarization. The cell's already depolarized. How can you depolarize something that's already depolarized? So you actually can't send another signal. But you know that that's not the case. You know that you can touch the table, then touch the table again and feel it, which means that that neuron must have reset. When you first touched the table or touched your colleague and you felt that touch, your neuron went from being negative to positive, but then you touched it again, which means it's gone from negative to positive again. So it must have reset from going back from positive to negative. The, the question that is, how does this happen? 
Well, once that neuron has hit positive 30 inside the cell, those voltage-gated sodium channels close and voltage-gated potassium channels open up. What does that mean? If you have voltage-gated potassium channels now opening up in, at the neuron, that means that potassium can now freely move across the membrane. Where was potassium most abundant? Inside the cell. So if you now open voltage-gated potassium channels, potassium will move from inside the cell to outside. And what charge is potassium? Positive, which means it's now taking its positive charge with it as it moves from inside the cell to outside the cell. As this happens, what do you think happens to the overall net charge inside the cell? It goes back to being negative again. This is called repolarization. Okay? Depolarization was making the negative inside positive by throwing positive sodium in. Repolarization is when you allow for positive potassium to be thrown out of the cell making the inside of the cell negative again. That's depolarization, repolarization. That's how you reset the charge of that cell, okay? Now, in actual fact, those voltage-gated potassium channels will remain open for quite a long period of time, so long that more potassium, so much potassium gets thrown out of the cell that it goes beyond negative 70. Remember the resting membrane potential of negative 70. It can go down to negative 90. This is called hyperpolarization, and this is a safety mechanism for us so that we don't accidentally stimulate that neuron again. Epilepsy, this hyperpolarization does not occur. This safeguard of not stimulating that neuron again does not occur, which means, think about it, in epilepsy, you have neurons firing off in an unpatterned manner. Fire, 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 fire. Instead of firing, resetting, firing, resetting, firing, resetting upon an appropriate stimulus. In epilepsy, what can happen is that neuron will fire off, and as it starts to repolarize, it doesn't hyperpolarize, which means it doesn't go so low, become so negative that it's a lot harder to stimulate again. It may just become a little bit negative and stimulate straight away without a stimulus. And that can be part of epilepsy. So hyperpolarization is a safety guard. It's a safety mechanism. Now what that means is, think about it, the charge within the cell compared to outside the cell determines how easy it is for a neuron to fire off. The more negative the inside of the neuron is compared to outside the neuron means it's more difficult to fire that neuron off. Why? Because the firing off of a neuron is, means you need to make it negative 55. If it's negative 90 inside that cell, that's a bigger gap from negative 90 to negative 55 than it is from negative 70 to negative 55. If the neuron is negative 90 inside the cell compared to outside, you need to throw in far more positive sodium compared to if it's negative 70 inside, right? So if you hyperpolarize a neuron, it's more difficult to get it to fire off. Very important. Now that's how you reset the cell, by throwing that positive potassium out. But now you may be saying to me, Michael, Dr. Mike, we now have the opposite of what we started with. We started with positive sodium outside and positive potassium inside, and the inside of the cell is negative 70. Now what we have after all this is that, okay, the neuron's negative again, back to around negative 70, negative 90, but now all the sodium's inside because that's where it moved to, and all the potassium's outside because that's where it moved to. How can we throw sodium in again in the subsequent stimulation if it's all already inside the cell? Great question. The answer is that sodium-potassium ATPase pump that I spoke to you about at the beginning of this podcast. It will take all that sodium that's just been thrown in the cell and chuck it out. It'll take all that potassium that's outside the cell and throw it back in, and that's resetting that neuron. That's what an action potential is. I hope that makes sense to everybody. So to reiterate, if you're going to be doing an exam... Now, actually, let's talk about some clinical implications, right? Why do you need to know this as a clinician? You need to know this because there's certain medications that play around with action potentials, okay? Let's give an example. Local anesthetics. Many local anesthetics block voltage-gated 
sodium channels. What does that mean? If you block voltage-gated sodium channels, even if you significantly stimulate the receptor, let's just say you stimulate the receptor of your finger, and enough sodium mechanically uh, sodium moves in through those mecha- mechanically gated sodium channels. Doesn't matter if it hits negative fifty five, right? Because that's the key to open the voltage gated sodium channels. If you've put a big padlock on them through lidocaine, for example, or some sort of local anaesthetic, no sodium's rushing in, no action potential is sent down the neuron, no signal gets sent to your brain. You have no idea what's just happened. That's how local anesthetics work, by blocking voltage-gated sodium channels. In actual fact, that's also how cocaine can work. I'm going to do a podcast on some of these illicit drugs. I'm going to talk about the role of cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines, MNDA. I'm going to talk about, because it's very important for clinicians to be aware of, how these drugs actually affect their patients. And they affect them by altering neurotransmitters and also by altering ion movement. Okay, now, cocaine, like I said, blocks voltage-gated sodium channels and used to be used as a topical analgesic. Stop pain topically by blocking those voltage-gated sodium channels. So this is one reason why you need to be aware of action potentials. It's just one reason. As we go through our podcast, we're going to be bringing up action potentials because it's super important. We're going to talk about ion movement because... We know, I'm sure you know, if you're a practicing clinician right now, you know that if you play around with how much sodium is outside the cell compared to inside the cell and how much potassium is outside the cell compared to inside the cell, you can affect the way the patient's neurons fire off and heart contracts. And it should start to make sense now, right? If for some reason that patient, for whatever reason, all the potassium has decided to move into the cell, right? So if you take the blood of your patient and you measure that they're hypokalemic, right? So that means they don't have enough potassium in their blood plasma. That means, remember, potassium should be in the cell, right? And not much potassium outside the cell. So when you measure blood plasma for potassium, it should be low, right? But if it's lower than four millimoles in which it That's the average sort of reading. If it's below that, it's telling you that the patient is hypokalemic. They've lost some potassium some way. Now, they may not have lost that potassium through, I don't know, blood loss or through kidneys or through whatever it may be. Sometimes potassium can be forced to jump into the cell. And if that potassium jumps into the cell, you can't measure it when you do your blood serums. And so you think it's exited the body, but in actual fact, it's just been redistributed to inside the cell. What does that mean for your neurons? If the positive potassium has decided to relocate itself to inside your neurons, will that resting membrane potential of your neuron be negative 70? No, it's going to be closer to zero. It's going to be closer to the positive, right? Because positive potassium has moved in. So it may be negative 60, right? Now, if that's the case... Do you think it's easier or harder to stimulate a neuron or stimulate an action potential? It's going to be easier. So that means these patients may have neurons that are firing off constantly, resulting in neurological changes, neurological issues, right? Think about the opposite. What if there's not enough potassium inside that cell and it becomes far more negative inside the cell? It goes from, instead of being at the resting membrane potential of negative 70 millivolts, goes down to negative 90, goes down to negative 95. It's going to be far more difficult for the patient to send a signal and maybe their brain won't fire off, okay? This is why, one of the reasons why it's so important to know the ion concentration of your patients and it can cause them to go into comas or have seizures, all right? Hopefully that starts to make sense. A similar thing happens with sodium. You need to understand the sodium concentration, again, because it's going to change how easy it is for neurons to fire off or not fire off. Okay, I might leave it there because I've been talking very quickly. And uh, if I spoke at the normal pace in which Matt forces me to speak at, then uh, this probably would have gone for two hours. So if you've made it this far... Firstly, congratulations. It's so important for you to know about action potentials. Secondly, please give us a review on iTunes. If you do like what we do and you want us to continue doing it, we'd love to get your feedback. We're doing this for, well, we're doing it for free, obviously, but we're doing it because we love to teach. 
Dr. Matt and I love teaching nurses, med students, physios, OTs, aspiring health professionals, and even those who are already health professionals with continuing professional development. We love teaching medical science. Okay, so please give us a review on iTunes if you like the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram if you've got Instagram. It's just GU Biosciences. That's Instagram. Uh, Twitter is also GU Biosciences. We give updates on Twitter and give some interesting facts. We've got Facebook too. Just type in Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Or if you've got a question or you want to talk to us or you want us to do a particular topic, please send us an email. Again, GUBiosciences at gmail.com. We love you all. I'll speak to you soon. Hopefully, Matty will have come back from India with some very interesting stories. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.